Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jennifer Lin, author of Beethoven in Beijing. Jennifer Lin is the author of Beethoven in Beijing, stories from the Philadelphia Orchestra's historic journey to China. Uh, let's go back to the mid-20th century. How significant was the Philadelphia Orchestra in American music at that time? Extremely important, extremely prominent. The Philadelphia Orchestra was started in 1900. Uh, but in the time period that you're referring to, like 50 years ago, they were considered one of the big five, the very best of the best in terms of American orchestras. It was New York, Chicago, Boston, Cleveland, and Philadelphia. So there was the whole Stokowski legacy and then Eugene Ormandy. So among classical music lovers, the Philadelphia Orchestra was really way up there. Now you mentioned in the book uh, something called the Philadelphia Sound. What was that? So it was explained to me that the Philadelphia Sound really evolved and emerged because of the Academy of Music, that the acoustics in the Academy of Music were such that to compensate for kind of a dryness to the, to the concert hall, that the, uh, the string section would really be very lush more so than uh, some other orchestras. So that became the Philadelphia Sound. And it, it really emerged during the Stokowski era. Now, the, the story you tell takes place in 1973. Uh, can, you, can you explain the Cold War situation that we were in at that time? It's very important to understand what was happening between the United States and China in 1973. So basically, we did not have relations with China in 73. And it goes back to the Chinese Civil War, which ended in 1949 with the communist regime being victorious. The United States had backed the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. And so the relationship between China and the United States severed at that time. It became exacerbated after the Korean War or during the Korean War, where we were backing the forces in the South and China was backing the forces in the North. And actually from that time on, America was known as the American Wolves. And China was known as Red China. So there was a lot of tension between the two nations. Um, this was also worsened by the fact that China had entered something called the Cultural Revolution. This was in 1966. And Mao was trying to stoke the revolution. And it was a period of violence and anarchy and real chaos. So that only made matters worse. 1973. It's still the Cultural Revolution, but something important is happening behind the scenes. Richard Nixon wanted to normalize relations, and Nixon always felt that it was ludicrous for basically a fourth of humanity to be isolated, and that was China. And so Nixon started this process of reaching out to China, and on the other side, he found a receptive a partner in Premier John Lai. So really working behind the scenes, these these two politicians were, were trying to bring the relationship to a more normal state. So Nixon made his very famous trip to China in 1972 to meet with Chairman Mao. And uh, 
after the Nixon visit in 72, which was in February, the two sides wanted to uh, do exchanges. And the first exchanges were mostly sports, in the realm of sports. There were American swim teams that went over to China and collegiate basketball teams. And this was important because we had to, we being both sides really, had to change perceptions. So think about it. If you were born in China after 1949, you just thought of the United States as the evil empire. So what they needed to do is change perceptions both in China and the United States. So that's why the, there were these cultural exchanges. So after the swim teams went over and the basketball teams went over, the two sides wanted a cultural element to the relationship. And that's when the Philadelphia Orchestra was invited to go to China. And in many ways, it could only be the Philadelphia Orchestra that got the invitation because the Philadelphia Orchestra was a favorite of Nixon. He said he grew up listening to their albums. And also in 1972, the Philadelphia Orchestra played at his second inauguration instead of the National Symphony Orchestra. So there was a sweet spot for Ormandy uh, from the point of view of Nixon. On the point of view of the Chinese, there was also a sweet spot for the Philadelphia Orchestra because in 1940, the Philadelphia Orchestra held a benefit concert on behalf of China, and it was to raise funds for their medical relief efforts. Now, in 1940, uh, the Chinese were engaged in, in war against Japan, so it was really to help uh, the Chinese during this, this period. So they didn't forget that. China does not forget their friends, nor their enemies. But in the case of the Philadelphia Orchestra, they remembered that in 1940 there had been this, this benefit uh, concert for China. So yes, so, so they were the natural selection. So I want to go back to something you were talking about, the Cultural Revolution. Uh, how did Mao see art and music in communist society? He saw art and music as a tool of revolution, and it had to serve the revolution. So. Uh, there was a classical music tradition in China going back, you know, a hundred years or more. Uh, classical music, Western classical music, was introduced to China by the missionaries. For, at first, you know, the Jesuit missionaries who went to China, but then also the Protestant missionaries. And so the, the oldest orchestra in China was the Shanghai Symphony. Uh, so when the revolution when the Civil War ended in 1949, there was great debate in China on what they should do in terms of the Western classical music canon. And it was decided, you know, to continue playing Western music. And in fact, there was a famous concert in 1959 where the Central Philharmonic performed Beethoven's Ninth. That changed dramatically in 1966 when Mao started the Cultural Revolution. And he said, art, music should serve the revolution. And it was at that time that they actually banned the performance, the playing, the practicing of Western classical music. So from 1966 until 1976, orchestras in China were not allowed to perform Beethoven or any of the greats. Uh, and even students uh, in China were not allowed to practice the works of Beethoven or Bach or Chopin or any of them. So it was, it was viewed as a tool of revolution. So during the Cultural Revolution, there were these model operas and ballets and symphonies. 
And there were at first eight of them. It increased, I think, to 18 or something like that. And these were the only productions that people were able to see. So, you know, think about it. Here in Philadelphia and in Harrisburg and across the state, you know, any given day you can see just a wealth of options when it comes to art. But in China, during the Cultural Revolution, you could only watch these model operas that conveyed a revolutionary theme. So when the Philadelphia Orchestra went to China, they saw a ballet called The White-Haired Woman. And it's about, you know, a, a, a young woman who falls in love with a revolutionary soldier. So, you know, art was just very, very controlled during the Cultural Revolution. And only things that served the revolution were allowed. Now, you say in the book that many lives were destroyed, particularly those of artists, musicians, and intellectuals. Uh, what would it have been like to be a musician or an artist as the Cultural Revolution is coming in? What would they have experienced? Horrible. It was horrible. And actually, I know that it, uh, for a fact because of my own family's situation. So I um, wrote another book called Shanghai Faithful, which is a family memoir. And one of the characters in my book is a cousin of mine who's a few years older than me. She was a piano prodigy. She grew up in Shanghai. In 1962, she entered the Shanghai Conservatory, which is the most elite conservatory in China. And so she was studying the piano, and then the Cultural Revolution began in 1966, and basically her world ended as she knew it. Instead of going to the conservatory to learn how to play music, she would go to the conservatory every day for political indoctrination. So there was a night in August of 1966 where three groups of Red Guards came to my family's home in Shanghai. The Red Guards were young people who were basically Mao's stormtroopers. They were young people who were going to enforce the revolution and destroy old ways. And one of the old ways were, were Western, Western culture and art. And so these three groups of Red Guards came to the family home. They uh, ransacked the house. They took away my cousin's upright piano. They destroyed her sheet music. They burned it. They took her Deutsche gramophone albums and they, and they broke them and she was left with nothing. So a few, I, th I think it was weeks or months after that, my cousin went to an uncle's apartment and he still had his piano. His piano hadn't been taken away and she couldn't help herself. She started playing some music and the Red Guards found out. So the next day when she went to school at the Shanghai Conservatory, they dragged her into a classroom. They made her father, my uncle, uh, also be there in another classroom, and they basically beat her. They tried to break her hands with a ping-pong paddle, and all of this because she was caught playing Western classical music. So for classical musicians, the Cultural Revolution was really difficult. One of the reasons was because they, uh, a lot of the students and a lot of the faculty at the Shanghai Conservative Conservatory had Western ties. So particularly the older faculty members, they would have known, uh, you know, foreign musicians who were in Shanghai before 1949. And so basically they were punished for that. They were, they were held up as examples. And at the Shanghai Conservatory, there were 17 professors who committed suicide during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, musicians were sent to the to the countryside to work as peasants, uh, to learn from peasants. So 
great orchestras like the Central Philharmonic. They were sent into the countryside to pick fruit. My cousin, who I spoke of, she was sent to the countryside for many, many years. And this particular cousin of mine, she returned to Shanghai to be an accompanist to a lyric opera company. And she told me that in 1973, when the Philadelphia Orchestra came to Shanghai to perform, she was given a ticket to attend one of the concerts. And she said to be there in the audience, listening to Beethoven being performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra, it was like being in the desert and getting a long drink of water because these very musicians, they were not allowed to perform this music when the Philadelphians were in town. So to just to be able to hear it was a real joy, a real pleasure for them. So the Cultural Revolution just was a very chaotic time and particularly difficult for musicians. Who was the Gang of Four and what was their role in the Cultural Revolution? The Gang of Four were four political leaders, including the wife of Chairman Mao. Her name was Jiang Qing, Madame Mao. She was actually trained in Shanghai as an actress. She ap appeared in movies, uh, you know, in the early part of her career. And then there were three of her colleagues. And they basically controlled a lot of things during the Cultural Revolution, including arts and culture. So they were basically the enforcers of Mao's edict that art and culture could only serve the revolution. So they uh, were basically implementing that policy. After the end of the Cultural Revolution, they were basically blamed for a lot of the, the hardship, a lot of the destruction and violence. And in fact, they were tried for that and sentenced to, to death. Uh, but the head of the, the Gang of Four was Madame Mao, Jiang Qing, the wife of Chairman Mao. In, in the book, you talk, uh, of course, this, this example of uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra going to China as an example of music diplomacy. And you say, our present day cynicism inclines us to reject the sentimental notion of music as a bridge between people, of art and culture as diplomacy. Can you talk a little bit about music diplomacy and what, why it was so significant? It was so significant because music connects people in a way that is, you know, just so sublime. Uh, and I know that sounds a little trite that music connects us, but it really does. And, you know, Phil, I can remember being in China, in Beijing, at the National Center for Performing Arts. This was in 2017. And the Philadelphia Orchestra was performing Beethoven's Ninth with a Chinese choir. And to be in that concert hall, hearing this music, uh, you know, again, the Chinese choir was singing the wonderful words, and Yannick Neze Segan, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, was conducting. And there's just this connection. So it's a way of, of allowing people to interact without the need of language, because it's the universal language of music. And again, sounds very trite, but it's, it's so effective. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention recently on U.S.-China relations and how tense and fraught they are, and, and that's all true. But what is overlooked sometimes are these relationships between the two countries that have been evolving over the decades, and particularly in the realm of music. So there are connections between orchestras, between conservatories. There's so much uh, collaboration going on. You look at any top-tier orchestra in, in the country, in the world, really, and you'll find musicians from China. 
and many Chinese orchestras now travel to the United States and to other places to perform. So there's been this this real con again that word connection that's been developed because of culture. So diplomats can negotiate, but it's culture that really can connect us. Uh, now, one of the key figures in the book, of course, is Eugene Ormandy, uh, the conductor of the orchestra. Who is he? Eugene Normandy was uh, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra beginning in the late 1930s. He was a legend. He was like one of the late, the last great conductors in America, uh, you know, just a towering figure. Uh, he, as I said, he led the orchestra for many, many years, uh, and he was also very uh, politically astute. He wanted to go to China. He wanted to be the first American orchestra to go to China. And he basically lobbied hard uh, to get there. He was a friend of Nixon. He had many friends in politics. Uh, the late Senator Hugh Scott was a friend of his, and Scott then lobbied on Ormandy's behalf. So he was, he, he was, the, he was the man. <laughs> and he was the one who eventually got the invitation to go to China. Did his efforts to, to get that invitation uh, affect the Chinese in, in offering the invitation, or were they two separate things? They were concurrent things. So I think what happened is Nixon went to China, and then they were kind of floating the idea of cultural exchange, and the name the Philadelphia Orchestra came up. And so Hugh Scott actually traveled to, to China uh, after Nixon went there, and of course he planted the idea of the Philadelphia Orchestra too. So there were many people, politicians, who were lobbying for the Philadelphia Orchestra. And then on the other side of the equation, the Chinese were very receptive to the idea for the reason I cited before, that there had been this benefit concert for China back in the 1940s. So, so it was a concurrent thing. And so, as I said before, it could really only be the Philadelphia Orchestra that would have been chosen for this spot. So once China offered this invitation and it was accepted, did the orchestra just hop on a plane and go? Oh, it took many, many months to plan. Uh, you know, when the news came out, it was a little bit controversial. Like, there were some people who were not thrilled with the idea. Uh, one of the musicians, Renard Edwards, told me the story that there was actually a concert where someone stood up and said, don't go to China. But they, the wheels were already turning. It took many months. The invitation came out in February. The trip was in September. And it was really treated like it was some sort of, you know, diplomatic mission. This wasn't an ordinary tour. When the Philadelphia Orchestra goes to Vienna or London or Paris, it's very much kind of a, a business transaction where they're dealing with concert promoters. In the case of China, the government of China was very much involved and had to sign off on the program. And the uh, orchestra took many, many, many months for them to get any sort of feedback from the Chinese on what they wanted to hear. In fact, Ormandy was so frustrated by the lack of response that there was a diplomatic cable that went from Washington to, to Beijing. And uh, the State Department officer who sent the cable to his counterpart in Beijing said, 
Maestro would like to know what the program is going to be before he walks out on stage. So could you please tell him what's approved, what's not approved? The Chinese, because their relationship at the time was tense with the Soviet Union, they were not interested in really celebrating any of the Russian composers. So Kayana Tchaikovsky was, was off the list. And there were certain European composers that they didn't approve of for whatever reason. Debussy, for, for instance, he was on the no list. So they had to have the, the concerts vetted uh, by the authorities. And that never happens when they're traveling uh, in Europe or, or South America or anywhere else. So this was very much viewed as a diplomatic mission. So when, when the orchestra flew to China, were, were they able to, were the members able to bring family members or, or other, other figures? No, they were limited to 130 people. That was it. And there were some very influential uh, individuals who were tr lobbying hard to be part of the trip. Uh, I found out in my research that Walter Annenberg, the philanthropist and the publisher from Philadelphia, was lobbying hard. And so was former Mayor Rizzo. He wanted to go on the trip. But they could only take 130. They could only take one plane. That was on the Chinese side. They were limiting it. And so it was the musicians, uh, some board members, a doctor and a nurse, and stagehands. And that was it. So, uh, you know, as much as some people wanted to go, it was really a very small group that went. So when the orchestra arrived in China, what, what kind of reception did they find? A very warm reception. They arrived first in Shanghai. They had to uh, change planes and take a local Chinese jet from Shanghai to Beijing. And when they arrived in Beijing, it was in the middle of the night. And there were crowds of people welcoming them. The next day, like as they were driving through Beijing, they would go down a street and literally there would be lines of people on the sidewalk applauding them. And this happened everywhere they went. It was all through Beijing, and when they went to Shanghai, there were great crowds. And it's really interesting, Phil, because their trip was being analyzed very closely by China watchers. So by diplomats, by experts who kind of are trying to determine what the future of U.S.-China relations would be, they were watching this closely because they wanted to know how were the Philadelphians being received. It's very interesting. One thing I found out in my research is that at the time of the tour in 1973, there were only about 100 Americans living in China, in all of China. Now, before the pandemic, there would be tens of thousands of people traveling between the United States and China on a daily basis. But back in 73, there were 100 people. Some of those people were, were diplomats from the United States. We didn't have an embassy, but after the Nixon tour, we had a liaison office. So the uh, one of the diplomats in the liaison office was Nick Platt. And if you read his diplomatic cables that he was sending from Beijing back to Washington in the months before the tour, and during the tour, you'll see how he was really analyzing very closely the reception of the Philadelphians. And he made note of the fact that there were large crowds to welcome them. There was a welcome concert that they performed the next morning where they, the Chinese performed America the Beautiful. Uh, and there were uh, front page stories in the People's Daily and all the other national newspapers. It was on national TV. And this was noted by Nick Platt because, again, they were reading the tea leaves. They were trying to really determine 
after the Nixon visit, whether China was truly on this path of reopening relations uh, with the United States, or could it revert back to the bad old ways? So the, uh, the diplomats were very heartened by the reception of the Philadelphia Orchestra wherever they went. Now, when you talk to members of the orchestra, what did they tell you about their first impressions? You, met, you mentioned one, uh, one of the members in the book said that they felt like pioneers. They felt like they were making history. And I remember Tony Orlando, a percussionist, telling me that when he picked up the People's Daily, which is the main newspaper in China, and saw a photograph of the entire orchestra standing next to Madame Mao, that it really sunk in for him that this was historic. Again, Americans were so rare on the streets of China. So wherever they went, they drew a crowd. And that is, uh, you know, a, a reaction that to a person I heard, you know, how we would go for a walk in Tiananmen Square and would just be surrounded by Chinese who were curious. Uh, one of my favorite stories, Phil, from, from my reporting for the book was there was a violinist named uh, Bob De Pasquale. He's one of the famous De Pasquale brothers. There were three of them, and they were all in the orchestra. Uh, but Bobby, as he is known, he decided to take uh, a walk one morning in Shanghai, and he was uh, joined by uh, Harold Schoenberg, who was a New York Times classical music critic, and Kati Martin, who was the young WCAU TV reporter. So the three of them set out for, for a walk, a morning walk, and as they're walking down this street, they heard the sound of a violin. And they looked up and they saw there was a little boy who was practicing his violin on the balcony. So Bobby you know, couldn't help himself. He said, oh my God, let's have him come down. So they motioned up to this boy and he came down to the sidewalk and they didn't speak Chinese. The boy didn't speak English, but they spoke music. So Bobby took this little boy's violin and was showing him how to play scales properly and was showing him some different techniques. And then Bobby, being a showman, couldn't help showing off. So he then launches into some piece, I think it was Rachmaninoff or something, uh, and he's standing on the sidewalk, you know, performing, and all of a sudden, like, he looks up and there are literally hundreds of people who have stopped in their tracks and they're, they're watching him and they're witnessing. And neither side could speak the other's language, but it didn't matter. And Bobby told me, uh, you know, and this is in the book, he said, for him, that was the most important moment of the entire tour. And he said, I wish the world leaders could have seen this because this is what cultural diplomacy is all about. You had asked about that before. And it's really allowing people to make these connections uh, in a real, real way. Now, you also tell a story of uh, Booker Rowe, who he came across a group of children who greeted him with clapping, and he clapped back. He had been told before the trip by, by someone who was counseling the musicians on kind of what to expect, that in China, uh, you know, it's, it's not uh, uncommon for musicians to clap for their audiences, too. So Booker was going for a morning walk, you know, suffering from jet lag, and he wanders into one of these courtyards. In Beijing, there are a lot of courtyard homes. And he said he was surrounded by children, and they started clapping for him. So remembering this, this coaching that he had been given, he just started clapping for them. But Booker is really one of the special characters of not only the book, but also the documentary, because there was this wonderful scene that we captured where there was a reunion luncheon 
where we had brought six of the Chinese musicians from the Central Philharmonic Orchestra who had met the Philadelphians back in 73, together with some of the Philadelphia musicians who were still performing in the orchestra. This was 2016, and there were six of them who had been to China in 73, and they were still members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. So we, we had this lunch, and we brought the two groups together. And I'll never forget it, because when Booker walked into the restaurant, there was a Chinese violinist, a woman, who ran up to him immediately and said, oh my gosh, you're the one. You're the one who, back in 1973, gave me sheet music. This was all done through a translator, but what she told Booker is that you know, you, you gave me all of Mendelssohn's, the music for Mendelssohn's string quartet. Uh, and she said, I'll never forget that because her music had been destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. And the music that she had was all handwritten. You know, all the Chinese musicians had to recreate their scores. And to be given this gift of, of you know, scores was just really special to her. And the following year, we followed up and I went to her home to interview her and she pulled the scores out of, uh, you know, off of her shelf. She still had them and she laid them out on her table and she remembered how Booker said, oh, I feel bad. This one has a little stain. And she said, it doesn't matter. These are priceless for us. So uh, it was just remarkable because nearly 50 years later, this woman still remembered that moment uh, where, where she met Booker Rose. So uh, that was that was one of my favorite scenes in in the documentary and also in the book. So we talked a little bit about some of the musicians out walking around. How much freedom did they have to do this? Were they sneaking out or did, were they just given that that amount of latitude? They didn't have a lot of freedom. Like when Booker went on his walk alone, he had been told beforehand, don't go out alone, just go out in pairs. Not because it was dangerous, but because... You know, it was kind of unknown territory for all of them. So they uh, were there for 10 days, and basically every minute of every day was scripted. The Chinese hosts wanted to make sure that they were doing something at every moment. And this was also very unusual for Ormandy. When they tour Europe or South America, Japan, they're there as musicians to perform. But in China, they actually were tourists. And this is something that Ormandy didn't like to do, but he was convinced that this is something he should do. So he willingly went on a tour of the Great Wall. They went to the Ming Tombs. They went to the Forbidden City. In Shanghai, as I mentioned, they went to see a revolutionary ballet. So Ormandy had a reputation as being a bit of a diva. Uh, and usually he got his way. But in the case of China, he was much more accommodating and willing to, uh, you know, play a guest in their country and to actually go on many of these outings. So there were not a lot of times for the musicians to go out on their own. They would. They would walk around the city. But, but basically they were kept in the bubble of, of the orchestra. How many concerts did they perform there? They performed six, four in Beijing and two in Shanghai. And uh, what were those like? Were they, were they open to the public or were they by invitation only? They were by invitation only. And so a lot of the people who would have been in the audience would have been cadres, so communist officials or musicians. So the uh, Beijing concert, for instance, uh, members of the Central Philharmonic, uh, you know, people who were in the music world 
would have been there, but they were not open to the public. And, you know, uh, I went to a symposium two weeks ago at Penn, uh, and the subject matter was the Chinese composer who the Philadelphia Orchestra met, uh, a man by the name of Li Dulun. And there was one uh, Chinese woman in the audience who told a story, and it's like, I wish I would have had this for the book, but I didn't know her at the time. And she was an older woman, and she said that in Beijing, she had heard about the orchestra coming, and she tried to sneak into the concert. And she had friends who had gotten tickets, and they would somehow pass out to her the half of the torn ticket, and she tried to pass it off. Uh, she got through the, the doorway and into the concert hall, but then she was caught and she was tossed out. So the concerts were limited. There were only six, and the audiences were controlled, but it was news. Uh, it was in the newspapers, and the national TV actually would have a report about the Philadelphians being in China. So people knew that it was happening. Uh, was, were the concerts broadcast on radio? There was a radio a recording, um, but I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it was the entire concerts. It would have been snippets of concerts. Now, one of the pieces that you talk about in the book that, that was of great significance was Beethoven's Sixth. Why, why was that the subject of so many negotiations? Oh, that was a b big kerfuffle between Nick's, uh, between Ormandy and Madame Mao. So, as I said before, there was a lot of delay in getting their programs approved, but finally they did, and, and Ormandy intended to play Beethoven's Fifth. In China, Nick Platt was getting words from his contacts that the leadership would really like to hear Beethoven's Sixth. And by leadership, that was really Madame Mao. She wanted to hear Beethoven sixth. She liked that. She didn't like the fifth. The fifth is about fate, and she doesn't like that. Uh, so uh, it was up to Nick Platt to persuade Ormandy to change his program for her and to perform Beethoven sixth. So poor Nick Platt, when the Philadelphia Orchestra arrived in Shanghai, he had flown down from Beijing. He got on the plane. He sat next to Ormandy, and he began to try to persuade the great diva that he should perform Beethoven's Sixth and not the Fifth. And Ormandy said, I hate the, the Sixth. You know I don't like the Sixth, and I didn't bring the music, so there's no way we can perform it. And Nick Platt basically, you know, being a diplomat, being very diplomatic, knew how to kind of gently turn uh, Ormandy to his way. And he said to Ormandy, he goes, you know the pastoral symphony, which is Beethoven's Sixth, is about peasants, and the Chinese Revolution was all led by peasants. So Nick actually says in the movie that he, he began to make things up, and he said, you know, it's all about peasant revolution, so please could you change his, your mind. So Ormandy finally capitulated, and what happened was he didn't have the scores. And you're talking about needing more than 100 scores. So the Chinese host dispatched a military jet to Shanghai to pick up their scores, and then gathered scores from the Central Conservatory. So they cobbled together enough scores for the musicians, but a lot of these uh, were hand uh, handwritten because, again, during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of scores were destroyed. And Herb Light, one of the violinists, says that, you know, they'd be playing along and like, whoops, wrong note here, whoops. You know, so there were some mistakes in these scores. Um, but Larry Gricka, another violinist, he, he added the comment that, 
you're talking about the Philadelphia Orchestra. You're talking about Beethoven. They could play this with their eyes closed. So it didn't matter that the scores were, were not uh, complete or had mistakes. So they just played through it. You mentioned that the third concert was called the big one. Why? Yes, it was the big one because they knew that a big leader was going to be there, but they didn't know who it was. And so right before the concert began, Ormandy's wife, Gretel, was asked to come out into the audience because they wanted to seat her in the front row. So Ormandy's like, uh-oh, something big is happening. And it turns out that the surprise, the mystery leader was none other than Jiang Qing, Madame Mao. Now, this was very big news for the diplomats like Nick Platt and others who were watching the situation because, again, she was the one in charge of arts and culture. So Madame Mao takes her seat in the front row, and her whole demeanor was later analyzed by Nick Platt in a cable that he sent from Beijing back to his colleagues in Washington. And he described how she reacted to the music, how she seemed to be talking at one point. And uh, he even described in excruciating detail, and this is in the book, what she was wearing, uh, how she was wearing a dress and carrying a handbag and wearing pumps, and her watch had precious stones around it. Again, they were trying to divine meaning from every little, little hint, every little gesture. And during the Cultural Revolution, people in China would only wear Mao suits, these kind of unisex suits with boxy pants and jackets. And here she is showing up in a black dress and carrying a handbag. So they found great meaning in all that. You know, Nick also describes how the other members of the of the gang, in, gang of four were reacting and noting how one of the men uh, was really seemed to know the music he was listening to. So it was big news. And then Madame Mal insisted on meeting every single member of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and their buses had already left the concert hall and were heading back to the uh, hotel. So they had to send a police car to stop the bus and to turn it around, uh, which they did. And then when they got back to the concert hall, she shook every single musician's hand and handed out a little gift, uh, you know, of fragrant petals for them to put in their tea the next morning. So it was front page People's Daily the next morning, and it, it was really very historic. Now, you also quote Nick Platt as saying that the officials who worked for Madame Mao were scared to death of her. Why? Yeah. Well, uh, that was actually his wife, Sheila, who shared that anecdote uh, because she was so powerful. And so they, uh, you know, and again, uh, the Cultural Revolution, it's hard for Americans to kind of get their minds around how uh, chaotic that whole period was. And there was so much violence in the early years of the Cultural Revolution. Not in 1973, things had calmed down by then, but still, the Chinese knew that things could turn on a dime. So that's why they were looking at her and trying to get their cues from her. And it was Sheila Platt who said that everyone was on high alert and kind of looking to Madame Mao to know how uh, enthusiastically they should clap. Uh, you also say that, there, that in the hotel rooms that there were no locks on the doors and that they would often find clothes if they hung a shirt on a doorknob it would come back pressed later in the day. Yeah, so, I mean, there there was no crime in China, so why lock your door? Uh, one of the musicians, a tuba player, 
had an old pair of shoes that he was wearing when he showed up in China, and they finally were falling apart. He said that, you know, they literally could not be worn anymore. So he threw them in the wastebasket, and the next morning, you know, you know, he found the shoes out of the wastebasket and next to his bed. So he tried throwing them away again, and again, they were taken out of the trash. So he said he finally, there was like a sofa in the hallway of this hotel, and he put them under the cushion because he wanted to get rid of these these shoes and uh, not have to drag them back home. And he said he was at the airport, and the shoes found their way, you know, someone brought the shoes to him, thinking that he forgot them once again. And so Paul said he finally just had to throw them in a trash can at the airport. So yes, it was it was kind of a, a different atmosphere for them. Now, in, in addition to the mus musicians, there were also reporters along. Who, who were some of the reporters that you talked to? There were only five reporters. There was, uh, you know, Daniel Webster from the Philadelphia Bulletin, who was the classical music critic. There was Harold Schoenberg uh, from the New York Times, uh, he was the music critic. There was Kati Martin, the only TV reporter for WCAU. And then there was the, ex excuse me, I, I misspoke. Uh, Daniel Webster was for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was the music critic. The Philadelphia Bulletin made the brilliant choice of sending a sports columnist on the tour, the famous Sandy Grady, who was a wonderful writer. And it was really a shrewd move to send him because he was kind of like every man on tour. Now, you know, Daniel Webster was a classical music expert and he really knew music, so did Harold Schoenberg. And while they were writing about the tour, they were focusing also on the music. Sandy admits he didn't know the music, but he was just like the average Philadelphian all of a sudden plopped down in, in China. And he had some wonderful observations that were beautifully written, some of them very humorous, about, you know, putting back, uh, you know, the, having a drinking game with Chinese musicians at one at dinner. Uh, but also, you know, he, he just had a wonderful touch. So uh, Sandy Grady, and it was only those, I, I said five, it was actually only four reporters. Um, Kati Martin tells some interesting stories, too, because she was newly arrived in Philadelphia. She was only, I think, 25. But she had just gotten her graduate degree from George Washington Uni uh, University, and she had studied Sino-Soviet affairs. And all of a sudden, she's new at WCAU, and the station manager decided to send her, which was actually a smart choice because Kati understood the geopolitics of the tour. This just wasn't a tour. This was geopolitics. So they sent her, and she said, boy, did that go over badly at, at the station. She said all the senior reporters had their daggers out for her because they were jealous. You know, everyone wanted to go to China, and they picked this young woman who hadn't even, like, paid her dues yet. Uh, and she was the perfect choice. Kati did a wonderful job. She ended up making a documentary when she came back called Overture to Friendship, and it won a Peabody Award. Uh, and she's someone, you know, that we I interviewed uh, for the book and tells some funny stories. So Kati's a 25-year-old in China. It's 1973. She wore a short dress, a miniskirt. And she said the first time she took a walk uh, in Tiananmen Square, she said she was surrounded by people who were just looking at her, so looking at her legs, probably. So the next day, she went to a department store, and she actually bought kind of a mouse suit, the, the boxy you know, jacket and the, 
the pants and she she wore them whenever she went out on the streets to try to do man on the street reporting. Now, uh, one of the things you say about Sandy Grady, or you quote him as saying, because you mentioned the drinking contest, he says, yeah. I was on the Philadelphia Orchestra drinking team. Yeah. So it seemed to be a little bit more formal activity there. Yeah. He, he, he was funny. You know, that was one of the last nights they were in China. And they were in Shanghai, and it had been a triumphant tour. And everyone was feeling really good. And so they, they indulged a bit. Uh, at, the, at the final banquet, and that's when Sandy was talking about being on the Philadelphia Orchestra's drinking team. Uh, what kind of relationships did the members of the orchestra have with uh, Chinese musicians? There were a few opportunities where they were allowed to mingle. So there was one important event where the Central Philharmonic invited the Philadelphia Orchestra to come to a rehearsal. And this was behind closed doors. And if you'll recall, you know, at the time, 1973, orchestras like the Central Philharmonic, they were not allowed to perform Beethoven's uh, works. And so this was like a special uh, uh, deal that they had where they were allowed to do a rehearsal and invite the Philadelphia musicians to sit in on the rehearsal. And this was the composed, the conductor, Lee Delun, who was leading it. And at one point, he invited Ormandy to come to the podium and to lead his musicians. And the Chinese musicians who I interviewed who re remember that said it was unforgettable that when Ormandy took the podium, they could just sense so much how to interpret the music in a way that they couldn't with Lee Delun. And it would be just a gesture or, or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, motion to them. And so after this rehearsal, the, the Chinese musicians were able to interact with the Philadelphia musicians, and there was an exchange of gifts. So the Chinese side gave the Philadelphia percussionist a big gong, and then the Philadelphia Orchestra gave uh, the Chinese musicians a complete set of all of their albums from over the years. So there were other times, like when they were, went to the Summer Palace, uh, and there was uh, a boat ride on the Huangpu River in Shanghai where they were able to interact. So there were opportunities for them to at least try to get to know each other. Now, you mentioned that after the orchestra returned to the United States, a period of time passed, and then there was an attack on classical music, and, and uh, what was going on there? The tour was a part of cultural diplomacy, but it was also, you know, there, was, there were stuff happening behind the scenes that no one really knew was happening. Uh, but there was a lot of political tension between Premier Zhou Enlai and Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, Madam Mao. And those two were both basically political opponents and both vying for, for power. And Zhou Enlai was very much behind this idea of music diplomacy. Madam Mao showed up at the concert, but music diplomacy was really something that he was advocating for. Behind the scenes, unbeknownst to the American diplomats and as well as the Philadelphia Orchestra, there were, there were things playing out. So after they left China, uh, there was another crackdown on Western classical music. In January of 1974, 
the American diplomats woke up and read the Chinese newspaper, and it's like, oh, gosh, Beethoven's on the outs now. So there was another crackdown on Beethoven, where there was an article saying, you know, we should not be led astray, and this is still bourgeois music, and we shouldn't be listening to it. So it, it was kind of about Beethoven, but not really about Beethoven. It was about this political struggle going on behind the scenes between Zhou Enlai and, and Madame Mao. So there was, just by sheer coincidence, the day this news broke, I think it was, uh, you know, one of the wire services had a story about it, was the same day that Ormandy was appearing at the National Press Club in Washington, and he was giving a, a press conference about the China tour. And so that very, that very day, uh, you know, the, he also learned that, you know, the, the, the political winds had changed. And he, you know, Ormandy was asked about it, and he said, I don't know. He goes, it's hard, it's hard to, to predict what's going to happen next. Uh, but what happened next was that Mal died in 1976. And when that happened, the Cultural Revolution ended. There was a, a, you know, a big overhaul in the political leadership. The Gang of Four was out. And suddenly, all the controls were lifted. And it was the start of a period that became known as Beethoven fever, where basically uh, classical musicians were able to perform again, conservatories reopened, and there was a great surge in interest in Western classical music. Uh, in one of our, our characters in the, the book, as well as the film, is the composer Tan Dun. And he had been a teenager uh, during the Cultural Revolution, so when it ended, he was very anxious to kind of start his formal training as a composer. So he went to uh, Shanghai to audition for the Central Conservatory. Uh, he took a train. He didn't have money for the train ticket, so he hid in the bathroom for 26 hours, going from his home in Hunan province to Shanghai for this rehearsal, this audition. And when he got there, he said there were about 10,000 people auditioning for 10 spots. And he was able to win one of those spots. So, yeah, it, it was it was a, a great a great revival of interest. Now you mentioned your documentary uh, several times, and that was before the book. Uh, how did you come about making a documentary on this topic? I had been a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer for more than thirty years, and during that time, I was a correspondent in China in the nineteen nineties. It was in 2008 that the paper sent me uh, to China to cover a special concert that the Philadelphia Orchestra was giving in Beethoven. 2008 marked the 35th anniversary of the historic tour. And the paper sent me uh, to cover it because the classical music critics couldn't make the trip. And I knew my way around China. What I didn't really know that deeply was classical music. So I did a lot of reporting around the, the, the benefit concert that was going to be happening uh, with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I, I interviewed a lot of um, Chinese classical music lovers and people who were going to this concert, this anniversary concert. And I was really struck by the degree of nostalgia that people had for this orchestra. It was more than orchestral music, it was this orchestra. People remembered 1973. They remembered where China was. They remembered where U.S.-China relations were at the time. And they, they could recall 
the the Philadelphia Orchestra coming to China. And I, it really struck me, uh, and I wrote my stories, uh, and when I came home from that tour, I, I held in the back of my mind that this is really a story that should be seen and heard, not just read about. And so it seemed to me to be the perfect subject for a documentary. Uh, I left the Inquirer in 2015, and I pitched the orchestra about doing it, and they were very receptive. They introduced me to Sam Katz, who has made uh, many, many films, documentaries about uh, Philadelphia history through his company, History Making Productions. And Sam and I collaborated on the documentary. Uh, and Sam also introduced me to Sharon Mullally, who was my co-director on the project. So it was really in 2016 that we launched the, the documentary uh, by going on our first tour with the Philadelphia Orchestra. I went on three tours with the orchestra to China and one tour with a group from the Curtis Institute. So it was, um, the, you know, this wonderful collaboration with Sam and Sharon. Uh, so that was really the spark, though, of, of the documentary and ultimately the book, which uh, came out of the pandemic, actually. Uh, you know, I was, um, I always thought that I would like to write a book about uh, the orchestra's legacy in China, but you know, held it in the back of my mind. And then when the pandemic started and I'm sitting in my office in my attic, uh, you know, with nothing to do, literally, because all of the film festivals we were planning to attend had been uh, canceled or not canceled, but virtual. So we were not traveling from place to place to go to film festivals. And I had an abundance of time on my hands. So I decided to mine a lot of the research I had done for the documentary, as well as additional research. So there's a lot of new material in the book. And I, I really wanted to tell the book, to tell the story as oral history. Because it was such a memorable moment for the musicians arriving in China. And it was memorable also for the Chinese people they encountered that I, I wanted them to tell the story in their own words and to step aside as, as a writer. I do explain a lot. There's, you know, uh, sidebars on the Cultural Revolution and what that was all about and, and model operas. And so there is, there is some writing. I did some work, but, but it is told mostly through, through the oral memories of, of the musicians involved. Now, you, you were a, a longtime newspaper reporter. What was it like to transition from writing for newspapers to writing for a documentary film? I thought it would be easier than it was. It turned out to be uh, challenging, difficult, but at the end of the day, enjoyable. Uh, what I realized is that what seems great on the written page doesn't always translate the best into a visual image. So I had to get used to to changing things in the edit room. But luckily, I was working with Sharon, who's an experienced filmmaker, and our editor, uh, Rachel Stewart, who also uh, was able to, to help me uh, with that process. But it, it was very different. And the thing about writing is I opened the book with a scene, with a scene of Ormandy. It's 1971. He's talking to the manager of the orchestra, and he's reading all about the ping pong team that got to go to China. And he's saying to, to his manager, he goes, you know, how do you get to China? I really want to go to China. 
you know, they send the ping pong players, they should send us. So tell me, Boris, how do we get invited to China? And so I describe this scene as if I'm there. You know, it's a form of narrative nonfiction. And so when you're writing, you can do that. You know, you can interview people, you can research, you can recreate a scene. It's very hard to do that in film. You have to be there. So a lot of our documentary includes footage of us being in China, as well as archival footage and archival photographs. But, you know, it, it was, it, it is a lot harder than it looks. Well, we've been speaking with Jennifer Lin. She is the author of Beethoven in Beijing, stories from the Philadelphia Orchestra's historic journey to China. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.